morning. A um, couple of announcements before we open God's word together. First of all, beginning next Sunday, we will move our time till 9 a.m. So Sunday morning worship beginning next week, as we did last year, we'll move it an hour earlier because of the temperature. So I, I see all the sighs and the chagrins by the parents. Um, but it does start to get warm. And so as we just navigate this together, we'll begin at 9 next week. And uh, we'll see how that goes, okay? <laughs> Uh, a couple of other things I want to mention to you. Um, if you've been with Grace throughout this COVID experience, you know that one of the things that we've been doing for our community is a blood drive. And you all have been very, uh, very generous in supporting that. And we're going to do another one coming up on June 9th. So uh, it'll take place during the day here. Mark your calendars. You can go online and schedule the time. There's a link there through our website to the Red Cross site where you can, you can uh, come by and stop and, and give blood. And for all who have been doing that, thank you. It's a great, a great way of giving to our community and supporting them. Uh, one other thing I want to mention to you is June 27th, we will be doing a baptism at the McCabe's. And for those of you who have, are new to Grace, uh, one of our traditions, in fact, I think the McCabe's have been hosting this baptism like forever, and we gather after church, we head over to the McCabe's, and we enjoy just a time of gathering around their pool for baptism. And for parents, it's a wonderful time if your children have not been baptized and you would like to baptize them, it's a wonderful opportunity. We encourage parents to do that. Uh, we think that's a great uh, just spiritual leadership, discipleship moment for mom and dad. And so we, we, we encourage moms and dads to baptize your own children. But I also want to invite those of you who are adults who maybe have never been baptized before. A wonderful opportunity to take the step of just publicly naming and identifying with your relationship with Jesus. So if you would like to be baptized, let us know. Contact the church office. Make us aware of that. And we'll give you all the details and, and help you uh, make arrangements for everything, okay? If you would take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 18 with me. And we'll continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. If you have been with us in, in recent months, you, you understand already that Jesus used parables as his way of teaching. Um, one of the ways that Jesus connected with people. And the, the power of these parables was that they moved past the ways in which family patterns, life experiences, or culture had shaped their stories. That's true for us as well, isn't it? A lot of the ways that we think about God has been shaped by the families we grew up in, by our life experiences, and, and by the cultures that we were raised in. Well, parables uh, had the ability to kind of get beyond and get beneath all of those stories and awaken the imagination to what life with Jesus and what life in the kingdom of God could be and what it would look like. And it just drew people into the conversation in a unique way. But there was another dimension to Jesus' parables, one that we've not talked about. I want to take just a moment to introduce to you because there was a, another significant component and dimension to Jesus' parables. And it was subtle, not always immediately obvious to the listener. Um, but Jesus' parables were intended to disrupt. 
and they disrupted and reordered the listener's view of the world. Jesus was tinkering with them. And they were simple stories, but when people pondered and when the stories lingered, over time, uh, you embodied a different way to see the world, a different way to live in the world. Jesus was, was beginning to, to introduce a way of living, and he didn't always come at it in a frontal, direct way. He came about it very indirectly, in a way that would get beyond, uh, beneath people's, people's reservations and, 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 and patterns. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you understand that not everyone was ready to embrace this different way of thinking. There's a, there's a fascinating uh, portion in, in Matthew where the disciples, Matthew 13, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, so why do you speak to people in parables? And Jesus replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Fascinating statement. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from, from them. That's why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's hearts have become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and what they, and they have closed their eyes. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. So as people listen to Jesus' parables, the meaning of Jesus' parables were reserved for people who were responsive to them. But in, in, in a way that sometimes is hard for us to kind of grasp, they were restricted, the meaning was restricted from those who weren't responsive. In fact, it's fascinating when you read a lot of the parables that the people who were struggling with them and they remained a mystery, their, their initial response to the parables often was they got angry. Because again, it was messing with what was a very comfortable, safe view of the world and Jesus was, was reordering. Remember, he was disrupting and they weren't ready to have it disrupted. Well, Jesus' stories kind of slipped in the back door in an indirect, subversive way that lingered with the listeners long after they heard them. Story has a way of doing that. And it reshaped not only their views of the world, it reshaped their value system. Reshaped the ways they, they looked at people and the ways they lived. Which is why the characters, when, when you look at the, the Jesus stories, and now that we've, I, I waited till towards the end to, to talk about this, that's why the characters and the heroes in Jesus' parables were rarely the people the listeners expected them to be. It was a Samaritan. Or a, a man who runs out of food in the middle of the night and disturbs his neighbor or a stranger in the crowd who asked Jesus to mediate a family dispute and inheritance. Or a man that Jesus healed on the Sabbath outside the home of a Pharisee. Or an angry older brother and a prodigal son. A beggar named Lazarus. A scheming manager who protected his personal interest and yet Jesus honored him. A leper or a widow. 
So here's what you see in Jesus' parables, and this is why they were, they were such a, a disruptive, they were reversing the ways people commonly think. They were surprising reversals. And, and these reversals were the signature way of God signaling the ways of the kingdom of God. In other words, the kingdom of God is an upside down, back to front, inside out way of seeing and living that reshapes all of our expectations, reorders our prejudices, and rebukes our pretenses. And Jesus' parables remind us that God is different than us and that he sees the world differently than we see the world and that he works differently than you and I would normally choose to work. It's upside down. And, and so you see these massive reversals. And, and his hope with the parables was that we, his followers, those who are responsive to what we're hearing, his hope is that we would learn to mirror his ways and his words. A few years ago, uh, a writer some of you may be familiar with, Os Genes. He wrote a book called Renaissance, The Power of the Gospel, However Dark the Times. I think it was written six or seven years ago, and I, I've been rereading it over the past couple of weeks. And he has a chapter called The Dynamics of the Kingdom, and he described the everyday implications of these reversals and how you and I mirror God in today's world. So we are always ready for the surprising voice, always ready for the far from obvious leader or the last person you would ever think would be the key player. And yes, we are always ready to recognize God's nobodies in God's fools, people we would never expect that God is using. For these may be the truly anointed ones prepared to be seen and treated as nobodies and fools for Jesus' sake, whom God uses far more often and far better than we who are the obvious ones for God to use. And that's the story of the parables. Well, today I want to look at another surprising reversal. Uh, likely a familiar story to most of you. We've heard it told and retold in many different ways. And, and yet, as familiar as it is, now that we have a clearer understanding of why Jesus used parables, we're wise to revisit it. And as you'll see, invite it to disrupt us. Invite us to reorder, reorder us. Push us outside of some of the places we grow comfortable. So in verse 9, Jesus said, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Now, before, before I talk about this, who Jesus is speaking to here, I'd like to make an observation, an observation I think you intuitively know. How we see ourselves affects how we see others. How we see ourselves affects how we see others. A broad general statement when we think too highly of ourselves, we tend to think too poorly of others. And by contrast, when we think too poorly of ourselves, we tend to think too highly of others. 
If we desire to be people who comfortably display a Jesus-shaped hospitality, we've talked about that for years. If you and I want to live as people who comfortably display that that Jesus-shaped hospitality, if we want to be people who love others with humility and generosity and dignity and grace, paying attention to how we see ourselves becomes an important priority. Might even be the beginning point. It's the soil out of which everything else grows. You see, the importance of our self-awareness and our others' awareness in how people experience us. And that's the backdrop to this story. Jesus addressed the parable to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on others. Now, to describe what he meant by that, he told a parable that contrasted two people, verse 10. So two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now, Pharisees, let's let's think about the Pharisees for a moment. The more I read about the Pharisees, I think we've given them a bad rap. You see, on the whole, Pharisees, were highly respected leaders in Jesus' day. They took God and God's word seriously. Uh, They were the backbone and the guardians of Jewish religious culture. They held up and they protected the standards of biblical morality. Now, it's true, they could be pretentious and showy. Uh, They liked to be noticed for their spirituality And at times they were known to take advantage of the perks of their position of spiritual leadership that was afforded them. We're going to talk more about them in just a moment. He contrasts it with the tax collector. Tax collecting was the most exploitive but lucrative job available to a first century Jew. Tax collectors lived in the community with you and they were employed by the Roman government. Um, Think of an IRS agent who's your next door neighbor. Lives among you, knows your friends, knows your family, knows your business, just knows way too much about you. And in the culture of Jesus' day, they gained the reputation for being untrustworthy and dishonest. And, And they exploited their own people on behalf of the Roman government out of their own financial self-interest. You see, tax collectors in Jesus' day worked on commission. Um, The more they collected, the more they made. And so they often inflated what they were gathering from people to pad their pockets. Now, as I think about tax gatherers, I I don't think it was true of all of them. There there certainly must have been some honest tax collectors. Um, But generally, they were not trusted and they were looked upon with contempt. So Jesus paints this pretty stark contrast. Now, I want to step back for a moment because our tendency when we read a story like this is to see the Pharisee and the tax collector more like characters caricatures than everyday people among us. Um, You see, in reality, 
Pharisees and tax collectors attend our churches every day. In fact, I would say, it's you and me. They're you and me. Um, and it's not as easy in, in life apart from the story to tell them apart as it is when we read a story like this, when it's so clear and so black and white. Think of it like this. Modern day Pharisees are, are good people who feel pretty good about themselves spiritually. They're confident. They have clearly defined convictions about most things. If you approach someone who's like a Pharisee, they've got biblical convictions. Uh, they're responsible in their jobs and their families. They're respected in the church and the community. They're well-taught, biblically informed. They're serious-minded about God and their faith. They're actively involved in church life. They worship regularly, give faithfully, serve, and accept positions of leadership. I had this thought, they're the kind of people you build a church around. <laughs> um, the backbone of a local church. And as a pastor, I am really glad the Pharisees are around. <laughs> I can depend on them. By contrast, modern day tax collectors, and I, I want you to kind of detach yourself from the process of collecting taxes and just think of it as a, as a category for a moment. Modern-day tax collectors are more at home in the dog-eat world of competition and money than they are in the local church. They've learned to survive and succeed in a world where you do what you need to do to get ahead. And sometimes you push the margins as long as you can get by with it. And they may not feel good about them spiritual, themselves spiritually like the Pharisees do, um, and more than likely, they have learned to live with unresolved guilt and shame from past decisions or damaged relationships. They, they look in their past, and there's a lot of, lot of stuff floating around. Uh, some may even be troubled by secret sins, but they manage to keep much of it hidden from others. Their personal lives, they think, are actually nobody's concern but their own. It's not your business. If they do attend church, it may not be regular. Rarely are they going to step up and lead anything. And while comfortable in the workplace, they're uncomfortable in church settings. You see, their interests and their stories and their language don't fit with religious folk who appear to them to be too good or too put together. And so they don't feel safe or at home with most Christians. I've had conversations with people among you who that's exactly how they describe us. They do fine outside of the church and once they step into a context like Grace Church, they just don't feel at home. Don't feel like they can be themselves. Can't be comfortable. Now, what I want you to think about, and I'm kind of stretching you a little bit, as different as the Pharisee and tax collector are, in some ways they're actually very similar. Both are sinners. Both need Jesus. Tax collectors know they're sinners. Pharisees sometimes forget that. 
They lose sight of it. But as we'll see, in, as we see in Jesus' story, both find their way into our churches and both bring with them the spiritual longings and desires to connect with God, but they also bring their narratives with them. And so this Pharisee, verse 11, he stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers and evildoers, adulterers, adulterers, even not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. I want you to notice he stood by himself and, and prayed. Imagine that we're gathering and there's someone standing off next to the building over here. It's a posture of arrogance. He's distanced himself from others in the community. Um, as Jesus would say, he's pretty confident in his spirituality. And, and interestingly, he's strangely grateful that he's not as bad as other people. God, I, I thank you that I'm not like them. Uh, some commentators suggest that he was praying this out loud where people could hear him. I, I fast twice a week, more than the law required. I give a tenth of all I get, and of course he did. And if there was any doubt, he's likely to make sure you knew about it. You know, when, when you and I read something like this, he, here's the word that came to mind, obnoxious self-righteousness. <laughs> this is just an obnoxious person. Um, now, maybe you find yourself thinking and praying like the Pharisee, thank God I'm not like this Pharisee. <laughs> um, you know, I, I doubt, I seriously doubt that any follower of Jesus sets out with the intention of becoming self-righteous. Who has that goal? Who has the goal of becoming an obnoxious, self-righteous person? But spending so much of our time with religious people in a religious place like church cultivates self-righteousness. You see, self-righteousness grows naturally among people who are serious about God. It's just easier. And it's certainly safer to see the sin in other people's lives than it is to see the sin in our own lives. And if we're serious about our faith, self-righteousness is an occupational hazard of the spiritual journey. It trips all of us up from time to time who have known Christ and walk with Christ. It sneaks up on us. It escapes our detection. And if we're not paying attention, and, and in part because self-righteousness doesn't begin with standard sins that are so obvious to everybody. If we're unfaithful to our spouse, we've committed adultery. It's obvious to everyone, us and others. People are aware of that. Self-righteousness doesn't work like that. It isn't like that. 
It grows in the hidden interior world of people who are serious about knowing God, and it, it, its growth is slow, it's subtle. And, and I like to think of it like this. It's a lazy replacement for a carefully cultivated life that is self-aware. A carefully cultivated life of love. And it easily slips to the place where the barometer of our spiritual health becomes the deficiencies or sin we see in the lives of others that create distance between us. We measure our spiritual health against others we deem to be less spiritual than ourselves. And you may not say it, but we think it. And these thoughts cross our minds, and we, and we I'm, I'm so thankful that I'm not as sinful or unhealthy or as broken as, and then fill in the blank. My life's not as bad as, and, and, and we, we, we see ourselves through the filter of the deficiencies of others. And once we've drawn those lines, rather than moving toward people that we see as below ourselves in loving way, getting to know their stories with empathy and encouragement, we keep our distance. We've made up our minds about them. And being judgmental and critical becomes a pretty natural next step. And we find ourselves saying things that are obnoxious and hurtful. And as self-righteousness advances in a community of believers, here's the interesting things. How others might experience us rarely crosses our mind. As Jesus said, we're pretty confident in our righteousness. Pretty comfortable. And here's the phenomenal thing. And yet... While others experience the distance and the arrogance and sometimes the, the judgment of our self-righteousness, I've never met a Christian who knew he or she was self-righteous. Rarely do we name it. Not us. Somebody else, not us. I think it's part of the problem Self-righteous people don't see their self-righteousness. That's why it's uh, so toxic to spiritual community. Now let's contrast that, verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance, uh, so he too kept his distance. I love the way that Eugene Peterson kind of paraphrased, captured this. Captured this. Uh, the tax collector slumped into the shadows. But he kept his distance for a different reason. He didn't feel he was better than others. He felt he was unworthy of being accepted by others. And so he, he wouldn't even look up to heaven, unworthy of even God. He, he wouldn't look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have, have mercy on me, a sinner. See, this man knew his sin. He was painfully aware. Everyone in the room did as well. Many people had been taken advantage of by, by him. 
They were well aware of who he was. He knew his need for God's mercy and he bowed his head and beat his chest as an expression of his sorrow and his repentance and he asked God for mercy. And this is the posture of humility. I know I've mentioned this many times before, but it's something I have to return to almost every week. Because cultivating humility is something I must give constant attention to. Um, It's the only thing that breaks my drift towards my own self-righteousness. I have something in my journal that was written by Brennan Manning called Ragamuffin Realities. And normally on Monday morning, I pull this out and I review these and simple statements. First, I am becoming more little in my own sight. Just a reminder um, that I'm not who I think I am. And I'm becoming more little in my own sight. And secondly, I'm very conscious of my brokenness and sin. I'm learning not to require success, fame, wealth, or power to validate my worth. And I long to be startled by your extravagant love for me. And I need to experience the tenderness of Jesus lifting me scarred and depressed after my sin gently to himself for healing and hope. See, friends, here's here's what's counterintuitive. And I look around, and many of you have known Jesus for a long time. Here's what's counterintuitive to you and me who've walked with Jesus for a long time. The longer we walk with Jesus, the more intentionally we must work to cultivate humility. The longer we've walked with Jesus, the more intentionally we must work to cultivate humility or self-righteousness just sneaks up on us. Well, verse 14, Jesus kind of brings the story home. I tell you, he said, this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, the tax collector went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus' words were not what people expected to hear. Jesus' reversal may, may make most of us a little uncomfortable. And there's lots of conversation by commentators and theologians about this word justified in verse 14. Was Jesus referring to the tax collector's salvation? Was was Jesus using the word justified like Paul would later use justify in the book of Romans? Or was he simply talking about his well-being with God? Personally, I think it's the latter but a lot of discussion around that. But as I, as I read the story, humility and honesty about our sin is the only posture that fosters and protects a healthy relationship with God. It's where we experience God's grace and favor. And, and that has all kinds of implications for us. 
implications for us individually, of course, has implications for us as a community as well. You see, as a community, rather than being critical of the obvious sinners who hang around with us, rather than being critical when when obvious sinners kind of find their way to us, people who know their sin, they, they, they have a need for forgiveness, we would do well to be grateful for them for the gift they give to us. You see, modern day task collectors among us remind us of something too valuable to lose sight of. We're all sinners. We all need God's mercy. It never changes. And self-righteousness among us as a family is the primary obstacle to God's favor and the primary obstacle to our life as a community. So as is the case with all Jesus' parables, we're, we're wise to linger with a question. Which of the two people in Jesus' story do you most identify with? Are we more like the Pharisee? Or are we more like the tax collector? And friends, can I, can I challenge you? Don't run past that question too quickly. Linger with it. Kind of pay attention to it throughout the week. And just notice what you see about yourself, about myself. Earlier, I referred to us, Guinness book. I'd like to close with one of the prayers. At the end of each chapter, he, he writes a prayer. And I'd like to close with one of his prayers this morning. And then we'll come back to worship. Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, Redeemer, Master, and Friend, we give thanks for your divine love that sought for us when we were sinful and went astray, brought us back when we were lost, and humbled itself to be seen as weak, poor, and foolish in order to subvert and reverse our pride, our ignorance, our stupidity, and our sin. Grant that we may ever strive to serve you with the excellence you deserve while always aware, attuned to how your ways are not our ways so that we may embody the unlikely surprises and the unlikely uniqueness of your astonishing kingdom. In the name of Jesus.